Now, last night I spoke about four friends that we have, which are our purified emotions, loving-kindness, compassion, joy with others, and equanimity. But we have also enemies lurking within, and these enemies that we have, if we don't recognize them, and if we don't shut them out of our heart and mind, they are constantly playing havoc with our inner household. And this is why peace and harmony escapes practically everyone. It is as if we had our house entrance door open constantly. And although some vandals had already come in and broken the furniture and burned the carpet and stolen the silverware, we allow them to come in again and again. We don't even inquire what their names are. We don't inquire what they look like so that we could identify them if they show up in front of the door again so that we might know who they are and shut the door in their face. We have it open and allow them in. And we often believe that this is just part of ourselves and that there's justification for all that disturbance and turbulence. We try to find justification and rationalization because we want to make sure that we don't have to um, blame ourselves too much or we blame ourselves and become even more turbulent. Instead of doing the the thing which is really effective, recognizing who it is, making sure that we want to recognize them again and not allowing them in. These five are called the five hindrances by the Buddha. And they are sort of overall headings for all that ails us. We can make underheadings for that. But these five are the ones that give us trouble all the time. And once we have their names, I'm sure it's much easier to recognize them. We can then put a label on them. And then we can take steps to do something about them. Without recognition, there isn't a hope. The Buddha gave exact antidotes for all five. But meditation itself has antidotes. And this is a very important aspect of meditation. Namely the fact that we actually have an automatic laundering process through meditation. The deliberate purification which we have to do 
in addition to this automatic process is far more difficult and if it is done on its own without the meditation practically impossible one has to be a spiritual giant in order to purify the inbred and very much habitual negative reactions which are based on our wrong view of self. To do that without the help of the automatic process in meditation turns into a struggle, a struggle against that which is and that what we'd like it to be. And this kind of struggle is like a battle, like a war going on, and it cannot possibly produce the peace and the harmony that we're looking for, and it will also not give us any joy in the process. And more than likely, one will feel inclined to give up. If it is reinforced through the automatic process in meditation, it's an entirely different story. It works by itself. And the joy which arises when seeing that it is happening then reinforces one's determination to continue with the deliberate action of changing the negative into the positive. If it was possible without meditation, I'm sure the Buddha would have said so. He didn't mince his words at all. He said exactly the way it was. He himself meditated, even after his enlightenment, every single day. He certainly meditated before his enlightenment, and he certainly meditated just for six years, and he meditated just before reaching enlightenment. If it was possible to do it without that, he would have given us that option. He didn't give any option. But on the other hand, it's not meditation alone either. We've got to follow through from the meditative experience to the understanding where the direction is and what we're doing. In Pali, it's called Pariyati Patipata, which means the understanding, the investigation, and the practice. In this case, the practice of the meditation and the investigation, study, and understanding of what we're doing and the words. There are, as I said, five hindrances but there are also five factors of the meditative absorption which counteract each one of the five, one of the five hindrances. Now the meditative absorption in its very first instance, which has those five factors in it, is the first moment of meditation. Everything else is trying. Sitting down to watch the breath is trying to meditate. It's not meditation. 
It's a training to eventually meditate. We must be quite clear on that. To my knowledge, most people don't know that at all. They think that is meditation. It's nothing but using a method in order to get the mind to obey, to make it first calm, then pliable, expandable, and give it the ability to go beyond our everyday marketplace consciousness. Methods are always methods. They're never the essence. All methods which are geared towards calm and insight are fine. It doesn't matter. It's almost if we, if we say that one method is better than another, it's like saying one language is better than another. We happen to speak English and are able to communicate in English. So that is, for us, a good method. But language is not the essence. It's a means of communication. So if we get calm and insight from watching the breath, well, that's a good method. There are many other methods. They're nothing but means. I will delineate for you because I won't be here long enough to wait for you to come to that point in your meditation what will happen if you do get concentrated so that you get an idea what to do and how to use it and if you remember it it may be helpful to you in one instance it's definitely helpful to you namely in knowing what can be done at least that much. And one doesn't have to have a teacher holding one's hand constantly. Nobody has. It's totally unnecessary. It was not done in the Buddha's time either. The monks and nuns wandered off into their respective monasteries, nunneries, into the forest and did their practice. And then, possibly a year later, they appeared at the Buddha's door and asked him whether they'd done it right. Or sometimes he appeared in their forest and f to find out what they'd been doing. He wasn't sitting next to each of his disciples. It's not necessary at all. <coughs> One needs to know. He told them what to do. One needs to know what to do and then go ahead and do it. As I've said before, it's a do-it-yourself job. Nobody can make anyone peaceful, harmonious, loving, happy, joyful. How? We've got to do it ourselves. Nobody can make someone else concentrated. We could all do it ourselves. But we need to know the way, and we also need to know what we need to do on the next step. If we're watching the breath and we're diligent, which means we do it every day, and if we do it every day, morning and evening, 
maybe we have time and we can do it for an hour or more and we live our life fairly quietly not all sorts of excitements worries and fears plans and hopes and new endeavors but keep it fairly quiet it doesn't mean we can't go and visit our friends or anything like that but the inner quiet eventually the mind will get used to doing this just as it's used to understanding all the things that we offer the mind in our daily lives in our business lives in our household lives we didn't do that earlier now we understand these things the mind gets used to that the mind is perfectly capable of expanding much much further than we've ever brought to bear on it it doesn't have to be limited to just knowing what we can see hear taste touch and smell and think there's far more to it than that and we all have an inkling of it but we usually most people usually bury that inkling not only because there's so much else to do but because they think well that's just my imagination it may not be so some people are quite adamant about it and keep on looking for this something more so if the mind gets used to staying on the breath it doesn't take forever to become concentrated if the mind stays on the breath for 15 or 20 minutes sometimes even less the breath becomes finer and finer until it's very difficult to find it sometimes not at all the first reaction of people who haven't done this before is oh goodness gracious i forgot to breathe let me breathe again well of course that of course breaks the whole concentration nobody forgot to breathe nobody forgets to breathe on purpose what happens is that the mind becoming very subtle and fine has a very strong influence on the breath and that also becomes very subtle and fine we know very well that when we are excited or in a hurry the breath goes very fast and when we are at ease and at peace we can hardly notice that we're breathing but if we're not breathing we're dead so obviously we didn't forget to breathe but that's the first reaction so when you have that reaction remember you're through it again and the next time maybe the mind will not bring up this objection but realize that now the breath is fine and then at the moment when the breath is either very fine or can't be found a very pleasant feeling arises and this is the first instance of the realization that meditation has some effect because until then it's been a struggle trying to keep the mind where it should be now it being a struggle is also counterproductive anything that's a struggle is like having a battle going and whether one battles with others or with oneself doesn't matter battle is a battle and in war we don't really have any victors we only have conquered ones so there's never any profit in battles so we should never look at this as if we're battling against something 
What is there to battle against anyway? It's just the way we are. What we're trying to do is become self-observant, realizing what's happening within. And with that observation, the awareness becomes more concentrated and the awareness becomes far more subtle, far more one-pointed. And as this awareness of what's happening, their thought, the thought is this, then there's a breath. As this becomes more and more concentrated, the mind eventually becomes more and more one-pointed. So it's not a battle of trying to get away from the thought and getting back to the breath. What it is, it's trying to be fully aware of what's happening. So then, when the breath has finally come to the point where we can't find it because the mind is, or it doesn't have to be we can't find it, it can be so subtle, so fine, that we are aware of the fact that it is really uh, almost almost non-existent. That is the moment when we have learned to concentrate. And now we can look at the five factors which are part of this, what is called in technical terms, the meditative absorption, which means real concentration. Now the first factor is called initial application and that you've all done already. Initial application means to sit down and start watching the breath. To apply oneself initially to the meditation subject. (coughs) That's always a factor in any meditation. Whether the meditation then becomes a total conglomeration of unconnected thoughts or whether it even results in uh, drowsiness, the initial application is there and that's the very first factor. Now the initial application of sitting down and wanting to meditate has already two benefits. And I think that might be even enough for some people to get down to it and do it at home. The first is that one's making good karma. Karma, O monks, I declare, is intention. It's the intention, not the result. Now, this is a very important aspect of our lives. We are achievement, result-orientated. If we do something, it's got to have a good result. But that's not what makes a good karma. The good karma is the intention. Whether that then turns into a good result, well, that's a second and uh, secondary uh, benefit. So we're making good karma, that's the first thing. But we're also doing something else. We are counteracting the third hindrance, which is called sloth and torpor. Or you can call it laziness and drowsiness, whichever one you prefer. Now, sloth or laziness is in the body and torpor or drowsiness is in the mind. And since the mind is in charge of the whole business, of our whole life, it's the mind that is to be uh, regarded and to be watched. So if the mind 
is sitting, is there, watching the breath, even just initially, that is already acting against this torpor in the mind, the mind that is not willing to examine realities, the mind that is not willing to make connections between that what is happening and that what one oneself has put into action. A mind that gets into a drowsy state and therefore then the mind is in that state of drowsiness makes the body very lazy, non-productive. The Buddha compared this third hindrance of sloth and torpor with being in prison. If we are in prison, there's nothing we can do. We have to wait till somebody opens the door for us again, the cell door, till the mind wakes up and does something again. Now, if the mind has natural difficulty with torpor, it does not have the ability to see what is good to do and what is not it will usually follow the line of least resistance and probably try to get away with doing as little as possible physically and mentally. Well, it may be physically comfortable but it cannot be fulfilling. So being in prison means that there's nothing we can do we have to wait till we get out of that again. And the Buddha also compared this sloth and torpor with a water pond which was totally muddy. And because it's so muddy, we can't see our likeness. And this is one of the greatest problems we have, that once we are in the grip of any one of these five enemies we don't really know that we're in the grip of them because we cannot see ourselves anymore it's all covered over with that particular hindrance and this is why we need the ability which we gain through meditation to see ourselves more clearly when this water pond which would otherwise be a mirror is covered with mud and full of mud. There's nothing we can see. And it is quite true that if the mind is drowsy, it is almost as if there was mud in the mind, a heaviness, sometimes even a darkness. And uh, there's no lightness, quickness. There's nothing that the mind can really connect to and we don't even know it. Someone else might know it if they are very perceptive, but we ourselves don't. So we need that constant initial application again and again, which does not only refer to meditation, but refers to anything that we think is worthwhile doing in this life, again and again to initially apply ourselves to it, until it starts rolling. This initial application removes the torpor of the mind. 
Now in meditation itself, all of these hindrances arise in daily life, arise in meditation. There's no difference. We're not two people. We're not one person out there doing our job and one person in here doing meditation. It's all one and the same thing, all one and the same mind, one and the same hindrances. In meditation itself, a mind which is used to letting go into torpor will find it difficult to stay alert. And this difficulty is very common, not uncommon at all. And so this, the counteraction in meditation, I've mentioned them already the other evening because somebody asked about it, because uh, somebody had that experience, of being very drowsy is to open one's eyes, look at the light, move one's body, and if necessary, stand up and give oneself a pep talk. Now, the same applies in daily life. If one doesn't feel like doing anything, if one doesn't think that it's worthwhile, that uh, why should one try? It's better to just uh, take it easy. A really a big headline, isn't it? Take it easy. All those counteractions apply to be really alert and aware and give yourself a pep talk. Talk to yourself about what is important in life. Get the priorities straight. If one can't get one's priorities straight, one is always going to go around in circles. And it's, an, it's a must that if one gets on if one wants to get on with life we need to know what is most important and then put our energies into those directions we all have only limited energy we don't have unlimited energy but it's very interesting that the physical abilities have very little to do with that those people who accomplish the most have mental energy. And mental energy does not mean um, tension or um, um, achievement orientated. But mental energy means that a direction has been found which is a priority in life. And because of that direction, <coughs> there's no doubt what needs to be done. And the body as far as, is, as the body is capable, will follow suit. Naturally, bodies have their limitations, sickness, age, and so forth, but it's the mind that matters most. So we can translate the hindrances from our daily lives into our meditation. We can translate our counteractions against these hindrances from the meditation into daily life. It's all one and the same. And if we get practiced at it in meditation where we have no disturbance for at least some time, we can much easier then use that in daily living. So the very first one we all know, initial application, and we can do it over and over again. The second one most of us don't know yet, huh? that sustained application. 
which means actually staying on the breath. Now, in our daily life, unless we stick to the job on hand, it's not going to get finished, is it? And some people are notoriously bad about that. They start ten different things and nothing gets finished. It's a very childlike attitude. Children are like that very much. Not all children, but many children. They start ten things and nothing gets finished. But as one grows up, one needs to see which one's important. So sustained (coughs) application is the only way we can get any results. If we think that that's what we're doing is worthwhile. So sustained application applies to the meditation. We stay on the breath. It applies to our activities in daily life. It counteracts a very important hindrance, which most people don't even know they have, unless it's so pronounced that they have become aware of it. And that's skeptical doubt. Skeptical doubt has in its initial uh, initial meaning the meaning that we don't think we can do it. We have doubt about our own ability. <coughs> and because we have doubt about our own ability, we don't sustain our effort. The effort just fizzles out. I won't be able to do it anyway, or it's too difficult, or uh, it will take too long. Or, um, well, all that applies to meditation. That's what people think often about meditation, but they think about it about other things. If you think about building a house, if you have an initial application of building a house and you don't sustain it, you're never going to get a house. All you're going to have is some bricks lying about and a few pieces of wood maybe sticking up. So if we want a house to live in, we've got to have to sustain application. But since a house is necessary for survival, we're more likely to sustain our application. We think meditation isn't necessary for survival. (coughs) But if we only use our life for survival, we're wasting it. A complete waste of time. Because none of us are going to make it. So we might as well think of the things which are a little beyond survival. Skeptical doubt in daily activities is also based on the fact that we don't have proper priorities. We don't know which is most important to do. Like, shall I go to India or shall I find a guru here? Or is it meditation or should I go to therapy? Um, Should I get a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever the case may be? Or should I uh, live on my own? Uh, Should I live in the country or should I live in the city? Should I have a child or should I not have a child? I mean, the, the choices are innumerable. And people got all these things going through their heads. So where is there any leftover space for something really worthwhile? We've got to know where we're going. We've got to have a direction. So skeptical doubt, again, concerns in daily life, what am I going to do with myself? In meditation... It has a deeper application. It has an application of... um, Did the Buddha really know what he was talking about? How would I know? It's too long ago. It's two and a half thousand years ago. It doesn't apply to modern day. He didn't have computers and things. Um, 
meditation that's all right for some people i'm not i'm not uh, uh, have that ability all sorts of doubts arise and uh, maybe this spiritual path or maybe another spiritual path or maybe any anything at all that comes in the mind and the reason for that is because the mind isn't clear enough to see what to do with itself and that only vanishes at a much further advanced stage of um, insight it doesn't vanish at the beginning but what we need to do is to keep on in spite of it the Buddha compared skeptical doubt to being in the desert having no provisions no road map going around in circles and in the end being overrun by robbers it's like being in a desert where we really don't know which way we're going it's extremely damaging to one's activities and it is not to be confused with inquiry inquiry is healthy in fact the buddha insisted upon it he is the only spiritual teacher that or master i should say maybe that insisted upon his disciples inquiring into his words and not just believing them because he knew very well that a facile belief will not change a person one has to have the personal inquiry the personal experience in order to know that this is the truth so inquiry is healthy skeptical doubt is not because skeptical doubt is unfortunately also a lack of love it is usually carried around by people who are unable to commit themselves fully if one can't commit oneself fully then naturally one cannot get full success from it it is like holding oneself back a bit sitting on the fence well let's first see whether that one's going to get enlightened and if that one's going to get enlightened maybe i'll try myself well if we want to wait for somebody else to get enlightened we might as well forget it because that process first of all only enlightened ones know enlightened ones we only know what we've got in here in somebody else we'll never know who's enlightened unless we're enlightened ourselves and secondly if we want to sit on the fence and just sort of nibble on the fruit that's hanging over the fence we're never going to get a full meal a person that cannot commit themselves fully does not want to give themselves fully so if we don't have a wholehearted commitment <coughs> that means we don't have our whole heart in it how can we expect that there be wholehearted results from it will have half-hearted commitment half-hearted results there's nothing closer to us than our own spiritual development so if we compare this for instance to having a relationship with another person and our skeptical doubt takes over and instead of having a wholehearted relationship we once a day at least 
wonder whether there wouldn't be somebody better, there wouldn't be somebody else, whether we didn't make a mistake, couldn't we find somebody who is prettier, more beautiful, more handsome, cleverer, richer, whatever. Well, are we going to have a nice relationship? It's going to be a total mess, isn't it? It's going to be absolutely impossible to live together. Well, the same applies to the spiritual path. If once a day or once a week we have this question in our mind, well, isn't there something a little easier or a little more pleasant or something where you can believe in something, believe in something or something coming from above or whatever one has in mind, well, what kind of relationship is that? It can't possibly bring any uh, results at all. And also, in order to have any kind of benefit, heart and mind have to be involved. If we have a relationship with another person and we can understand that other person very well, but we don't love the other person, well, it's a very limited relationship, unbalanced. We're certainly going to look for something else. If we have that relationship with another person and we love the other person, but we can't understand the other person at all. Very unbalanced. No benefit. No fulfillment. We're going to look for something else. The same applies to the spiritual path. We've got to be able to understand it from the ground up. Every step on the way. If we don't understand it, we've got to go back and try and investigate again. But we've also got to love it. If we don't love it, why should we stick to it? would be like masochism. Very few people are masochists. If it is a struggle, a battle, a chore, an unpleasantness, why should we stick to it? There has to be love in it. Skeptical doubt is the opposite. Skeptical doubt is a kind of mind that wants to retain the their own ideas and viewpoints and just give enough of themselves to show that there could be and must be another way. The questioning always starts with yes, but. And when you see me grin, you can be sure that that's what the question was starting with. Yes, but. That's a typical skeptical doubt question. Inquiry starts from an entirely different set of feelings. Inquiry starts with, I am feeling, or I have experienced, or I was always thinking. It starts from where oneself is at. That's where inquiry starts. And that's essential. Without that, we don't have a path, without that inquiry. So this water pond, the Buddha compared with one which is covered over with water plants. And being covered over with water plants, one can't see one's likeness. Again, the one who has a skeptical doubt doesn't know he has them. It's very difficult to see oneself once one is in it. It's only when one gets a little clarity and steps out 
But one of the things which is the automatic purification is as soon as sustained application has arisen in meditation, the skeptical doubt vanishes of one's own ability. Obviously one can do it. There's nothing to doubt. I've just done it. And the skeptical doubt about the truth of the Buddha's teaching as far as that goes also vanishes because that's what the Buddha said that it's very peaceful when you keep your mind on the breath and it's just happened so both of those things take away the skeptical doubt which is the greatest handicap to go further having had that experience of sustained application then makes it possible to realize aha don't have to be a spiritual giant can do it I'll keep on with it and obviously the Buddha knew something because he did say that so let's see what else he has to say and with that with that much of benefit already we have already taken a large step there's a very big step between the initial application and the sustained application the initial application is when we sit there and the mind is still prone to the sloth and torpor which comes back after the initial application that's why when we start out with meditation and keep try to put the mind on the breath and the mind goes off on tangents we've got to bring it back over and over again this cannot be emphasized too much unfortunately meditation teachings are not a part of our culture hopefully they will be part of our culture one day <coughs> so much of the meditation teaching that is available is only uh, fragmentary it's not complete and even when we study the Buddha's words on meditation which are numerous innumerable we still find that they are also not complete there's two possibilities why that is so one is that we lost some of them in the space of two and a half thousand years which is quite possible and the other possibility is that people in his day and age anyway knew how to meditate and he didn't have to go into such detail the detail is only possible once one has done it so maybe that wasn't necessary in the Buddha's time because he certainly was not the inventor of meditation meditation was a very well established practice practice in Brahminical India into which he was born and the first record of it is 5,000 years old in the Rig Vedas the holy books of the Hindu religion the Buddha lived two and a half thousand years ago so meditation was well established he was the innovator of the insight resulting from meditation so we have here the constant need to return to the initial application in order to one day gain sustained application 
and that is the step which takes us then forward now as I already mentioned once before some people take a long time and some people take a short time and there's anything in between it's impossible to know some of it is due to past karma to having done it in past lives some of it is due to the kind of life one leads now these are all conjectures I wouldn't have a clue I have met up with people very few I must say who were able to concentrate in the very first meditation course it took concentrate to the point of absorption I have met up with people who have been at it for 15 years in the forest as monks getting nowhere anything is possible I would say both are extremes whatever anybody's future in meditation is I'm sorry I'm unable to predict the only thing I can say is if you don't keep doing it every day you haven't got a chance every single day and that is <coughs> difficult for most people because it means overcoming our natural inertia we have a natural inertia like the law of gravity which rules and the mind has the same quality it has a natural inertia that's why initial application over and over again until it becomes habit now you see when we were small I'm sure and our mothers told us to brush our teeth we used to say oh I don't want to or I'll do it later or I'll do it tomorrow or um, oh I've done it already or why should I do a thing like that every day and our mothers used to insist no you've got to do it every day because otherwise you're going to lose all your teeth of course we didn't even know what it meant to lose all, all our teeth but anyway she insisted on it so we did it and we're still doing it today we don't even worry about it anymore we just do it it's part of the daily trip well that's what's going to happen with meditation it has to become part of the daily trip and again will have to be our own mother and our own child every morning when we get up mother has to say come on meditation the child's going to say I'll do it tomorrow you have to say no today otherwise you're not going to get concentrated oh I got concentrated yesterday no do it today so we have to keep on insisting and insisting until it is so ingrained in us that we just do it and also of course there comes a moment when meditation the concentration in meditation is so well established that it doesn't matter anymore but that's a fair bit ahead it doesn't matter anymore whether one sits every day or whether one sits every week but even the Buddha after his enlightenment set for some time every morning that is, in the, that is transmitted in the Pali Canon we don't know what, what other times he said but 
at least every morning. So not only was he established in his meditation, but he was already enlightened. It's the only way to do it. There is no other way. I will tell you about the third hindrance and the third factor. And I'll talk about the other ones tonight because it will be too long otherwise. Having had sustained application happens that which I mentioned. Breath becomes very fine now. And then comes the switchover from method to meditation. Namely, at that time, what is called in Pali, PT, P-I-T-I, arises, which is often translated into English as rapture or bliss. But since those words connote something extreme, they do not quite do justice to what is actually happening. When I say very pleasant feeling, that also doesn't do quite justice to it because people don't know what a very pleasant feeling is apparently. I've had all sorts of problems with that. So it is difficult. It is not possible to say it is rapture. It is not possible to say it's very pleasant feeling. When one experiences it, one knows. I've so often been asked, well, do you think that was it? There's no question about it. When it's there, what has it? It is an extremely pleasant feeling which arises physically. And the attention is not riveted onto the body itself, but onto that feeling. In other words, the switch is from using the breath to the feeling. Now, since all our inner experiences are based on feeling, this is where we go. We are inside ourselves on feeling. It's physically generated, but it is not that we, it's not that we put our attention on the physical body. The feeling is described in 17 different modes in the explanation of this particular word the Buddha used. I'm sure there are at least 30 different modes, if not more. It doesn't matter. It's got to be so pleasant that there's no question about it. The first reaction by, for most people is, goodness, what's that? End of meditation. Do it again. That's all. This has a profound effect on the mind. This is an automatic laundering process against ill will. Nothing could be more important in our lives. Now yesterday evening I spoke about loving kindness metta and how we can generate that in ourselves and how that will be to the benefit of ourselves and naturally of others but how it has to be a cultivation of the heart <coughs> quality and how ill will and hate anything under ill will goes anything hate, anger uh, even fear belongs under that resistance, rejection envy, jealousy all that goes under ill will 
how we have to counteract that in daily lives. But it's mighty difficult. Anyone who's honest about themselves to themselves will know that often dislike arises. We may not start shouting and yelling. We may be quite uh, calm outside. But inside, dislike has arisen. Um, a feeling of rejection, resistance, a feeling of not wanting to be there, irritation. All that arises. Maybe we were not, maybe we're not saying a word. Maybe we're quite uh, um, composed outwardly, but inwardly we're not. So we all know that this is not conducive to any happiness. It's very difficult. In fact, I would say it's impossible to get rid of all of that without the meditative experience. Naturally, we have to reinforce the meditative experience with our daily action by trying to change the negative to the positive. But if we have the meditative experience of PT, the automatic process starts working. Someone who feels extremely well within or has very nice feelings cannot get angry. It's not possible. Naturally, that applies to the time of meditation. Since usually there's nobody there to get angry at, that wouldn't be so beneficial. However, we retain a residue and eventually <coughs> one becomes very adept of arousing that much of concentration to arouse that feeling under all circumstances. The inner feeling. It's not necessary to sit with eyes closed in a, in a, in a with cross-legged. It's possible to have it at any time. And having it at any time in a much milder way than doing meditation makes it possible to have a feeling inside of harmonious peacefulness so that anger becomes almost impossible. There, there is still irritation because these things only vanish through insight. But since this is much easier to attain than deep insight, and because it also paves the way for insight, we need to go this path on a paved road. It's much easier to travel than on one that has a lot of rocks and potholes. This is the paving of the way for us. Ill will was compared by the Buddha to a bilious disease. This is the bile coming up. And he also compared the water pond with one where there was much wind and the water was going up in high waves so that again one can't see one's likeness. When one gets angry and has let the opportunity pass of changing the anger. One sees only anger. One doesn't see oneself anymore. One doesn't even realize anymore that one's losing one's reputation. 
that one's making bad karma, but one is probably talking nonsense, most likely, because one doesn't have the ability to see anything anymore. It's all high waves of emotion. Naturally, we must counteract that in other ways also, as I outlined last night. But having this as a support system is invaluable. It has more to it than that. It brings benefits which are far more rich, far more far-reaching. The first one is that one realizes that meditation brings results which one has hardly hoped for and one is no longer apt to get up in the morning and think I'll do it tomorrow because one knows that this is what one really wants. With that comes the realization that what the world has to offer all of its, the, its temptations, all of its goodies, which appear to be so satisfying and fulfilling, are nothing compared to what we already carry within. The pleasure and happiness derived from this ability to sustain the application on the meditation subject and become aware of those inner feelings makes the world far less tempting. This does not mean that one can't go out for a nice meal. It does not mean that one can't admire a beautiful sunset or listen to a bird song or enjoy one's children. None of that. It means something far more profound. It means that one no longer expects fulfillment from any of that. And therefore, one can never be disappointed in it again. One knows that that, what one gets through one's outer senses, has never had in the past the impact that one has now had through the concentration by touching upon the purity of one's own mind because this is what actually happens. One has not thought long enough to get to the own, one's own mind's purity. And there the result has been far more impressive than any sense contact through seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling or thinking that we've ever had before. And at that moment, while we can enjoy the sense contacts in the world in the same way as we can look at a candle and realize it is light, we no longer search for them. And when we no longer search for them, our energies are released, our time is released to search for that and practice that which will bring ultimate satisfaction and not the changing ever-changing sense contacts which bring momentary <coughs> pleasures and then have to be renewed our whole 
stance changes. It is as if we are sitting here, we can see the upper part of the tree and realize it is a tree, but when we stand up, we can see the whole tree. We have a totally different standpoint towards that which is out there. It's fine what's out there, there's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't fulfill. And then we also know at that time why it didn't fulfill. Because it is impermanent sense contact contacted by us with impure mind. Not <coughs> nasty mind. Impure mind doesn't mean nasty mind. Impure mind means judging mind, discriminating mind. I like it, I don't like it. I want it, I don't want it. It's yours, it's mine. I'll have it. Don't, don't take it from me. That is impure mind. Whereas when we have finally sustained our application on the meditation subject, none of that can arise. It must not arise because otherwise we can't sustain our uh, concentration and therefore momentary purity has arisen. This momentary purity changes then our outlook. And not only that, but the momentary purity, of course, changes already the quality of mind. Because when the mind has all, all, even only momentary purity, it's much purer than it ever was before. And because it is such a pleasurable um, experience, there's no doubt that one will continue it. And therefore, the purification takes on an automatic, uh, automatic um, way of going along without even our deliberation behind it. We continue the purification automatically. And as we continue with that, we have, of course, an entirely different quality of mind the quality of mind becomes one where everything falls into place like a jigsaw puzzle that until then we only saw a few bits and pieces of. So this is the beginning of meditation. And I think this is a long enough now. I'll tell you the rest of it this evening and uh, give you a chance to ask some questions now, if you like. I have <clears throat> the difference between walking meditation as a method and sitting and concentrating on the breath. Um, it seems to me, from my experience, that walking meditation is a much more active sort of a thing. I wonder, I mean, do you know of people who have gone as far as PT using that method? Yes. I guess I ask also because I, I like going for a half hour run and I've said to myself, well, if you can do it with walking, you should be able to, you should be able to concentrate and use, use uh, a run as mm. a, a meditative time as well. Mm. Although, of course, everything speeds up and then your, your, your whole um, rhythm is, is speeded up so it's not quite as peaceful as the, mm -hmm. as the war. But would I be right in thinking that if you do it properly 
even while you're doing something like a run or a bike ride. So long as you're not having to watch out for dogs or crossing roads or anything like that. If you're going on a sort of circular course, you should be able to... No, not on a run. Not on a run. Not on a run. No. The reason for that is that the feelings which arise, the physical feelings which arise in the run, are overriding. I mean, you, you, there's pounding of the heart, there's hard breathing, there is a, a hard connection to the ground, uh, the movement of the body. There's, it's impossible to um, uh, not have attention to that. They're too strong. They're too strong. But what you can do uh, with running is to be utterly mindful of movement. And that complete mindfulness makes the mind one-pointed. So that when you then do sit down to meditate, the mind has already uh, gained the momentum of one-pointedness. So the mindfulness of the running is a very good thing to do. And some people find that also very meditative. But the, uh, the outline of those steps which I have just outlined would not go as far as the PT. The other physical sensations are too strong. But in walking meditation, yes, possible. Uh, I, some people like it very much and like to do it that way, and uh, possible. After having got to PT, one probably has to sit down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, what else? I can that because I do a lot of running also, and uh, I've always found it very good mindfulness. Mm. I've always found that I meditate very well just after I've run. Mm. So it's, it's definitely had some beneficial effect. Mm. Yes. So yes. I haven't made any great heights while running. <laughs> so it's always very pleasant. Yes. Well, that's good to hear because, yeah. I mean, I do think that if you do a lot of running, which you do, Ian, you can, you can override the physical discomforts because you're training your body yeah. um, to actually get conditioned I suppose to that mm. um, so you know obviously sort of pain things or discomfort mm. tend to recede the more you, the more yeah. you run oh, well I wasn't just uh, considering discomfort I was considering the strength of the physical that arises yeah. not necessarily discomfort speeding up the pain yes. Yes. yes and the breath strong breath also ok what else anything else Yes. Could you tell me if anything, um, the clarity of mind, uh, uh, intellectual sort of revelation, is it something that you're quite visual? That you're quite? Visual. Neither. um, Neither. No, neither. Clarity of mind is not intellectual. The greatest intellectuals are sometimes totally obtuse. Can't understand the (coughs) word they're writing. No, it's not intellectual and it's also not mental visual. Clarity of mind comes from lack of emotional overlay. Purity of emotion brings clarification of thought. Emotional overlay as negative, of course. See, when you're angry, you're angry. You can't see a thing. When you're passionately in love, well, you know, we even have that saying, love is blind. Right? Blind not meaning this blind. Mind being this blind. 
It's the emotional purification which brings clarification of thought. If you if you atta- if you um, approach anything on an emotional basis, with means with like or dislike, there's no objectivity in it, and when there's no objectivity, there's no clarity. And this we also learn through the meditative process by labeling our thoughts. You have to be totally objective. I mean, to say to your own thoughts, nonsense. You have to be objective. It is nonsense. But usually people don't call their own thoughts nonsense. Usually they think, oh, yes, of course. Mm. Got to do something about that. Objectivity or labeling your thought uh, unnecessary or greed. Objectivity. Is that clear? Somewhat. Not quite. Okay, ask again. <laughs> Could I ask you to clarify that in relation to metta? I don't know if this will help at all, but is metta an emotion? Or? Yes, but it's a pure emotion. Metta, karuna, mudita, opeka, the four uh, Brahma viharas, the four divine abidings which I talked about last night, uh, I mean I only outlined the first two in detail, um, are the um, emotional purity which do not have the personal overlay. There's no, pers- there's no person in it. There's not somebody that I've got to love. It is the quality of the heart which has been purified to get rid of hate and anger and the same with compassion. So um, with that, that arises as a result and uh, in one way these, these emotions arise as a result and as another way they are also resulting in, they're the cause for, the clarity of thought which comes from the meditative process. The Buddha apparently didn't know any other way of getting there except through meditation. I cannot offer any other ideas. It's got to be done through meditation and it's got to be done through proper meditation. And that is also important. There isn't, there, it isn't, as I said before, a part of our culture. We have to only slowly embedded into this Western culture. And because of that, there's still, you know, a lot of fragmentary um, notion about it. But the more objectivity, the more objectivity we can bring up in, uh, in our assessment of ourselves, which means no praise, no blame. I'm not as wonderful as I thought I was, and I'm not as terrible as I thought I was. They're just things arising and ceasing. The easier it is to be on an emotional even keel. And you see, equanimity is the pinnacle of all emotions. And that's even-mindedness. And it's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. And that's based on wisdom and objectivity. And metta is not an emotion which has the overriding quality Metta, loving-kindness, what I talked about last night, is a purification emotion. So the minute we approach anything with our emotions of like and dislike, we're already lost. The whole thing is already gone. Can't see it anymore. Well, what, that, what happens when you, when you have that, um, that feeling of, this is really nice, but then that's this is really nice. Well, yes. 
see. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, we're working on the on the desire to get rid of desire. You know, unless we have a, you see, unless you have a substitute for the worldly temptations, nobody ever gives them up. You've got to have a substitute. Nobody can give them up. Or it becomes such an ascetic suppression that you get the balloon ballooning out on the other side. Happens all the time. There's got to be a, a, a substitute for the worldly temptations. As you become more adept at this and then go further, this is the very beginning I'm talking about, right? You go further, you see that also as just one step. It's just one step. I only got as far as that one. Huh? It's just one step. It's not even the complete first step. These are the first three factors of the first step, which has five factors. And meditatively, there are eight steps. So we're on, on the third step of the first factor of out of eight. <laughs> so it's a very beginning. But when you get to that, things start changing. And that's not very hard to get to. It's amazing how comparatively easy it is. And that is a, another thing that people don't realize. It is a comparatively easy. You see, when you do get to that, I'll talk about that more also again when I continue in the evening on this thing. Um, when you get to that, your wisdom has to arise that this is only one step on the way. So even to become spiritually advanced, you have to have the desire to advance spiritually. And then you know that you have at least that desire. That's better than having desires for ice cream and sex and drugs and all that sort of thing, isn't it? <laughs> I've Unpleasant? Unpleasant feeling. Yes. In much the same way that a lot of my behavior in the world seems to be motivated by uh, towards avoiding unpleasant sure. situations. So when um, I got get beyond that point and unpleasant, <laughs> the uh, a series of unpleasant feelings are sometimes the feelings are so intense, are extremely intense, and I for a, a quite long period of time can't label, can't identify the feeling, what's happening I'm feeling. Unpleasant. Yes. Is it physical or emotional? <coughs> it seems both. Uh, is it, is it emotional caused by physical? No, I don't think so. No. I think it's, I, it's like the closest I've come has been words that are like fear or terror or, um, but sometimes, mm. uh, sometimes it's a very strong physical sense, like it's an enormous amount of heat. Mm. And really, what I'm wondering is whether it's best just to sit it out and wait mm. until some sort of I can apply some kind of word to it. Um, sometimes I'm not sure what. Well, it depends. It's, I, I can't answer the question uh, satisfactorily because I don't know enough about it. 
But if it's a great deal of heat, it could be too, the effort could be unbalanced, too strong. There could be in the mind this feeling of, I must get it together, and if it's the last thing I do, that generates heat. And if that's the case, don't. Relax. Just observe. Don't try to get anything. Now, maybe I should say that too. Don't try to get this pleasant feeling. <laughs> There's nothing to get. You've got to be... The thing to get is sustained application, to stay on the breath. Everything else follows automatically. So, just try to be totally aware of what's happening. But don't try to get good concentration or try to achieve anything because obviously the effort, if there's heat, the effort is too strong. So that is, that is one thing I can answer quite uh, without a doubt. But the rest, uh, I'm not sure what's happening. With the heat, yes, I can tell you what's happening. With fear, that I, I don't know. You have to tell me what went ahead of the came, came before the fear. Well, why don't you think about it now for a little bit? And if you think you can articulate it, you can tell me uh, at lunch or after lunch, uh, you know, <coughs> in, in alone, if you can, do it. You know, think about it a little bit. And we never have to think that we have an individual problems. So They're all universal. And that takes a sting out of them. We don't ever have to think it's mine. They're, they're part of being a human being. Anything else? <coughs> yes. Likely when I sit down to meditate, <coughs> my mind just immediately, I'm only just sitting there, and the mind moves into Mm. Good. But it also does that in Good. Just out of the blue, all the time. Wonderful. But then I muck around in meditation. I also, the mind also likes to look at every now and then. It's as if I'm I will start off. Very happy with that state. Yeah, what is but that state? I don't know what that means. That means it just, it's completely just very, very still and calm. So, what is your attention on? The overall feeling, the whole. Yes, the overall feeling, and the overall feeling is one of. You're having your attention on calmness, on stillness. Or is it, is it a, a more sensation, feeling, physical? Is it mental, emotional? It's not emotional. <clears throat> no, emotional doesn't mean emotionalism. There are two kinds of feelings. One's are sensations which are physical, one's are emotional. 
and peace is an emotion and calm is an emotion and pleasant feeling is a, is a sensation pleasant sensation like as if the body is really you know sort of very light and very very hardly touching the ground that type of thing sometimes it's, it's going from that it is emotional sometimes but then the body will get a physical tingling all over right okay that's pity that's the first step I've been talking about but then it disappears right and then what Yeah, well, you see, that's wrong. Uh, the, uh, the breath or any other method of meditation is like a key. And this key we have to hold into our, in our hand long enough and steady enough to fit it into the keyhole. And once we have fitted it into the keyhole, we unlock the door and we step inside the house. Well, obviously, when we've unlocked the door, we don't have to search for that key again. It's already unlocked. And the entry hall has PT in it. So once you have that and when it disappears, the first thing you have to look at is the impermanence of even the most pleasant state. And then, since you didn't need the breath to get into it in the first place, because obviously the door has stayed open, what do you need the breath for now? to get back to it. And please <coughs> put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Look into your heart to see whether there's any worry or fear anxiety, envy, jealousy, wanting, hoping, desiring, resisting, rejecting. If you find any of these, let them float away like black clouds, which they are. And now imagine that your heart is made from pure gold which radiates warmth and light filling you with love and peace and surrounding you with that too. Now let the warmth and the love from your heart reach out to the person nearest you in this room, filling him or her with that light 
with joy and surrounding and embracing him or her with your warmth and your love. Now open your heart wider so that it includes everyone here, filling everyone with the warmth from your heart, the lovingness, the friendship, and embracing everyone, radiating peace and joy to each person here. Now reach out to those people who are nearest and dearest to you. Let the warmth and love from your heart radiate to their hearts. Embrace them and surround them with peacefulness and joy. Let the warmth and light of your heart reach out to your friends, filling and surrounding them with love and joy, peacefulness and friendship.
think of people whom you meet here and there. Let them have part in the warmth and the love that comes from your heart when it's pure. Reach out to them, fill them with love and peace. Embrace them as your friends. Open your heart, the warmth of your feelings, as far as you can, to share the goodness that comes from the purity of love with as many beings as you can reach. Picture them, those that you know, those that you don't know, those that are near, those that are further away. Imagine this warmth and love coming out of you like a huge golden cloud touching people with love and peace near and far. Put your attention back on yourself. Feel the contentment and joy that comes from the purity of love and giving. The peace that comes from not wanting. Fill yourself and drench yourself with those feelings 